Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Aura of Power edition. I'm Keith Dryan, filling in as host for the vacationing Sarah O'Donnell. It is August 8th, 2014, and it's a shame that Sarah couldn't be here this week because we are marking a bit of a milestone at the Press Gallery. This is our 50th episode of the podcast, and what an episode it is because we have had a remarkable week of news over at the legislature. It started with our former premier, Alison Redford, resigning her MLA seat, and it is now ending with an absolutely scathing report from Alberta's Auditor General. Here with me in the newsroom studio today to help sort through all of this are three very esteemed guests. Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Keith. And senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. Well, let's get to it. The auditor's report that came out Thursday was stunning, shocking, explosive, dramatic. It's hard to find an adjective that actually undersells it. Uh, Miriam, there was an awful lot of important findings of that investigation, but uh, what were some of the biggest highlights that you saw? What's most interesting is the biggest conclusion that came out of the report, which is that the Auditor General found that former Premier Redford and her office routinely abused public assets, failed to follow their own policies, they failed to document reasons for why they were making decisions about how money was spent and how flights were being taken. There was uh, this sort of culture that allowed that to happen. Um, You know, there were examples of flying to Niagara with her daughter and an entourage with empty seats on the plane while other staffers flew commercial Uh, Instead of flying on the government plane, Redford, instead of flying commercial when it would have been more economical, flying on government planes. I mean, the the examples, every page of this report had an um, explosive finding. It was really incredible to read. And it wasn't just about the airplanes. Uh, It also talked about the abuse of commercial airlines flying super expensive business class, premium business class, when you could have flown economy or even regular business class. And as an added bonus feature, there was a surprise chapter about the Sky Palace. Yeah, this, yeah. This, this is the, uh, the the residential suite that the Premier's office had commissioned on the 11th floor of the federal building. What's really shocking in the report, two things. One, that this was signed off on not by anybody from Cabinet or Treasury Board, but by the Premier's personal executive assistants who authorized the uh, extraordinary expenditure. And Second of all, after we've been told multiple times that this project was cancelled, in fact, it was never really cancelled, says Marwan Sahara, the Auditor General. Uh, The bathrooms, the two bathrooms complete with shower and bathtub have gone ahead, and the suite is still zoned uh, from the city's perspective as residential space, but it's going to be filled with office furniture. Sahar points out that earlier on in the process, they announced that it was going to be filled with office furniture, and that was a trick, which they said was for security reasons. They didn't want people to know that the premier was going to be living there. So, right. uh, so as I as I say, you know, the, the the use of the government planes was just one part of of the delightful uh, good read of the summer. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, Paula and Sheila, sort of help me out a little bit here, because the auditor clearly found instances where the premier and her office used public resources inappropriately for partisan ends, for personal ends. But how does that happen, right? How does this happen in an era when we're supposed to have all this transparency and accountability? We've got these tough new disclosure rules on expenses. How is that allowed to go on? Well, what's interesting to me about that report is it's the first time there's been a public statement of the the aura of power issue, right? There have been lots of behind-the-scenes talk about she's dictatorial, you know, she doesn't uh, take no for an answer, caucus was unhappy with her style. Well, this puts it on the line that she would, people felt intimidated about questioning what she did, so you combine that 
sort of attitude with we can basically do what we want with a lot of loose policies that we realize in fact were not as tough as they were advertised to be as Merwin Zahar pointed out even that disclosure law didn't disclose all costs it only disclosed a certain portion of them and didn't tell you what the trip was for so you couldn't actually make a judgment as to whether it was worthwhile or not so it's partly the combination of her own personal leadership style which has its obvious downsides and pretty weak policies that were paraded as much bigger policies they don't even have in their statement about government flights that it explicitly prohibits use of the flight for party purposes and i must say she's not the first this is not the first time that's happened yeah no it's really true i mean what comes across is not just redford's personality but a culture of intimidation out of the premier's office Coupled with that, though, I mean, and it was fascinating because Doug Horner, the finance minister who's uh, uh, in, in the hierarchy, it, responsible, he's the guy in charge of the planes. So he's the finance minister, head of Treasury Board, gives a press conference yesterday after we've listened to this damning Auditor General's report in which Horner says, well, booking fake people on the planes, that was common practice because we needed to be flexible. We didn't always know who was going to go. So, you know, that's why there were fakes on the planes because we wanted to be flexible. And then Horner said, well, you know, uh, it's up to the ministers and the individual ministries to decide how they use the planes. That's not, I'm not responsible. That's not my responsibility. I'm pretty sure actually Doug, it is your responsibility. Well, uh, and in fact, the Auditor General said as much yesterday in his press conference that ultimately the responsibility for the administration of a program and for that program lies with the minister in charge of that program. And in this case, the minister in charge of Alberta's government aircraft fleet and how it is used is Doug Horner. I mean, let's look so, at it this so, way. We, yeah, we, ha- we have a fleet of vehicles, a fleet of vehicles, that puts it rather dramatically. We have a couple of cars here at the Journal that the reporters use. So it's up to the reporters and their editors to assign the cars properly. But fundamentally, if we if we took the car and we drove it to Waterton for the weekend, uh, somebody in the business office would ultimately be responsible for that. I mean, it, and, and it's it's the same thing. If, if the premier was using the plane routinely for personal vacations, which seems to have been the case, uh, if, if in a way, almost more troublingly, the government was using it for partisan party purposes to go to golf games and leaders' dinners and fundraising events, uh, and it's fine, you know, the party says, oh, we had no idea this was happening. Really? How did you think they were getting there? Did you think they were coming by magic carpet? <laughs> You know, I, I, what one most interesting aspect of Horner's, uh, and I, I agree with Mary, it was quite astounding defense of the basically the status quo. Now, partly he's defending his own record as, as minister, which was surprising that he didn't distance himself at all from this. So, like, are they so used to those planes, love those planes, it's just so darn handy, they're not going to touch them, and they're not going to even touch them in the middle of this crisis, was kind of astounding to me, and did say something about the culture of entitlement in the party. Yeah, well, okay, so Horner's not really taking responsibility. Alison Redford doesn't seem to be taking responsibility. Who is taking responsibility? Who should be taking responsibility? And Merwin Sawher wouldn't name those poor little people in the office who did the yeah, booking, I mean, I mean, thank goodness. I mean, Sawher said he wasn't going to scapegoat the, uh, you know, the mid-level bureaucrats who, who, who did these bookings. Well, as you'll read in our newspaper today, nobody took responsibility. Nobody has taken any responsibility, really, for how this all could have happened. And and he's and and the auditor general said yesterday that you know when when we're when we're talking about this aura of power and the fact that people, it seems, he said, worked around the rules and worked around the rules in order to fulfill the premier's request and and requests that were coming out of the premier's office. But not only that, worked around those rules in a way that would prevent 
the premier from taking any responsibility for those actions you know that's a that that's a failing of that office it's it i mean they they according to Sahara's report, they set up a culture that insulated her, that gave her plausible deniability so that she would be able to say, as she said this week, that she's taking responsibility for all the decisions that she made, just not for the responsibility for the decisions that anybody that she appointed or hired made. The only, right. the only trouble is the evidence is so heavily against her. It really, that doesn't really cut it, right? So she can fly in the government jet and then an hour later her aides turn up in a commercial flight? I mean, how did they get there? Why didn't they all come together? I mean, there's just too much evidence against it. But I think this goes to one of the crux of the matters, like who is responsible? So, and what about all those MLAs and cabinet ministers sitting around that, oh, were they afraid to? I mean, are, are, are we in an advanced democracy where you never raise questions? The, this, I mean, it, these guys have a lot to answer for. But the party would dearly love to make this all about Alison Redford and Alison Redford's high-handed aristocratic personality, blah, blah, blah. We're going to prosecute Alison Redford, blah, blah, blah. But, you know... One of the most revealing parts of the Auditor General's report is he has a little chart of where the, those government planes, which were originally purchased for emergency relief, uh, where they actually flew in, the la- in, in an 18-month period. And of the 247 flights, only 20 of them went to places that weren't served by commercial airlines, you know, places up north, for example. And, and Horner argued yesterday that they need the planes to access parts of the province that aren't easily accessible by commercial flights. Well, of 247 in an 18-month period, 20 went to places that you couldn't fly to. Some of those flights went to places where it's questionable whether government business was actually done. But of the 247 flights, almost 200 of them were between Edmonton and Calgary, a corridor rather well served by commercial air. But that was ever thus. For years, they've been doing that since... Well, I want to get into this a little bit because these planes, they seem to be constantly at the center of scandal, right? And the auditor's analysis says they're expensive, they're misused, the government has failed to explain why we really need them. Doug Horner says we do need them. But surely this has to be, this has to be the final straw that convinces the government that they have to get rid of these things, don't don't they? Well, Horner says, said yesterday that he, he doesn't buy the Auditor General's analysis and he wants to bring in a third party to basically audit the Auditor General's analysis of whether those planes are necessary. So Well, and of course we're now in the middle of, well, we almost made it through a podcast without talking about the leadership campaign, but we're in the middle <laughs> of a leadership <laughs> campaign and, and this has become one of the issues of it and so, you know, each one of them has their own idea about what should be done and whether we should wait. And so, you know, what they're what they're really saying is well let's do yes a cost a cost analysis let's let's determine if this really is valuable if we're going to provide value for uh, Albertans with these but you know the opposition has raised the question over and over again about whether there's there's an element here of using the planes more than necessary in order to justify their existence and their cost Um, and I think that is a valid question and and something that needs to be considered you know and and they need to make that cost analysis public because the 2013 one was never made public yes so we asked for that repeatedly yesterday transparency yeah did you yes yes we never got it and and Horner claims he's never seen it either which which I thought was a bit but he did say that yesterday. His name Miriam's giving me an odd look, I, but I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's. I couldn't quite wrap my head ab- around what he was referring to there. They, but yeah, I mean, he he was he did say that he couldn't he he hadn't seen some sort of cost analysis that was done. But but you know, I, I think it, at at the end of the day, the auditor general says that this misuse of the fleet probably cost Albertans four million dollars, three point nine million dollars more than it ought to. In the scheme of the Alberta budget. 
that's nothing. That that's, that's a drop in the bucket. For me, though, this is not so much just about money as it is about understanding how your provincial infrastructure works. To me, it's the same way. If you have a system where people put their kids in private school, they're much less likely to, to care about the public school system. Right. If you can opt out and have private health care, you've got much less buy-in in public health care. If you have your leadership class flying around in private planes, uh, the kind of option that very few Albertans get to exercise, maybe they're a little less interested in twinning the highway to Fort McMurray because they never have to drive the highway to Fort McMurray. They're going there in a plane. Maybe they're a little less interested in, in lobbying uh, the federal government for you know better support for uh, airport infrastructure. As soon as you divorce yourself from the day-to-day experiences that ordinary citizens face in getting around the province, you, you insulate yourself from the reality that we need to maintain our public infrastructure. And so when people are are swanning around in private planes. I don't just care that they cost me $4 million, which really, as I say, in, in the whole sweep of the Alberta budget is a is a rounding error. What concerns me is that they set themselves apart from we in the hoi polloi, and therefore they fail to understand that maybe it's important that we start I don't know, setting aside a right-of-way for a high-speed rail line between Edmonton and Calgary, because why would you care about public transit between Edmonton and Calgary if you could just go in your plane? <laughs> Paula, you mentioned earlier, of course, that uh, the party would like to continue to pin this on Alison Redford, and obviously that's where a lot of the public outrage is right now. But what is the fallout for the party? This is a party that is about to pick a new leader, as Miriam mentioned, uh, but they also mention that they're, you know, 18 months away from when the next election has to be called. There's lots of time to get their house in order, potentially. But it sort of feels like this is in kind of damage control right now is maybe calling out the for- firefighters after the forest is already burned down. Is is there any way that they survive this? Well, you know, it, sorry. It, well, I think it, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the reason this is coming out now and, and Redford resigned, it's all because they're trying to get it out before that September vote. Okay, that was, then they can, the candidates can say that was the past. We're going to be different. It's not going to work because the damage is way too deep, I think. And they would have to take some very dramatic steps. You know, okay, we're going to gong the fleet or uh, completely new rules, you know, never can be used for party business and we mean it. Um, but the trouble is you might even need a whole lot of, whole raft of new candidates because everybody in that caucus room that's been there for several terms has been sitting around using planes like this so it's really it's very difficult to step away from this and i must say the front runner jim prentice is not exactly mr dramatic in his approach to things so i'm not exactly sure what he can do to set himself apart here you know sheila i think jim prentice has a real challenge i mean let's assume for the sake of argument and hypothetically that he wins the leadership which you know he may he may not but he probably will so he becomes leader of the party. He doesn't have a seat. So he's going to have to run in a by-election to get into the legislature and actually become the premier. Well, he's not going to run in Calgary Elbow. He's already said that. Alison Redford's old writing is toxic for him. And I was actually stopping to think yesterday, if there were a by-election tomorrow, is there a seat in Alberta that he could be guaranteed that he would win? And given the mood in the province right now, I'm not sure that he is. I mean, Prentice doesn't just have to win an election in 18 months. He has to win a seat and sooner than later for the credibility of his party and his government if he becomes leader. And that's going to be no small feat. And of course, kind of lost in all of this is at the start of the week, we had Alison Redford resign her MLA seat. Of course, the, the timing seems pretty much linked to the, the, <laughs> the auditor's report coming out. 
But some thoughts on, on Redford. Uh, she chose to announce her resignation in a, in a letter that was published in the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal. Miriam, what did you see in that letter? Was this kind of the big apology that Albertans were, were looking for? No, I, I don't think so. I think um, that probably a lot of people feel that way. What Alison Redford has done since she resigned as premier in March is docked media and, and consistently failed to acknowledge or answer for any of these indiscretions, misuses, abuses of, of public assets, even things that we knew about before this scathing report came out. When she finally showed up to the legislature after having resigned as premier and, and being absent for 12 days, when she finally did show up, she was curt and again refused to answer questions about the Sky Palace, about about any of the controversies that had been swirling, because she said at that point they were in the past. Well, as I've said before on this podcast, it's very convenient for you to say that something's in the past when you've consistently failed to answer questions or calls or interview requests. So In the present Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, that's what I think about that letter. You know, I mean, she used the construction, mistakes were made. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 almost like a caricature of a politician's apology. Mistakes were made. Really? Who made the mistakes? What were the mistakes? The mistakes appear to have made themselves. Uh, our colleague Jason Markasoff at the Calgary Herald did a very funny piece where he parsed her her final letter and you know counted how many how many sentences were sort of kind of vaguely apologetic versus how many were uh, lauding her own career and accomplishments and slamming Albertans for being too parochial to appreciate her great global vision. You know, if you came here from another country and you read that letter, you would think, oh, this poor woman wanted to bring in progressive policies and she was driven out by people with a right wing agenda. That is such a grotesque rewriting of history because, you know, where were these progressive policies that Alison Redford claims that she brought to Albertans? Uh, they were thin upon the ground during her actual tenure. No, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that she could come in with such promise of progressive new approach, you know, uh, her whole pitch, um, bringing many, many new voters into the Tory party to accomplish this. Then what brings her down? is not all the betrayal of all those policies that set things up for this but what brings her down is this ridiculous use of airplanes and her sense of entitlement on personal expenses i mean let's not forget there's a whole section there about you know how her own policy agenda was overturned and she uh and all the groups that supported her suddenly found out that that support didn't pay off right now but but the letter is surreal i mean she's she's making an argument in the letter that somehow she was undone because albertans wouldn't get behind her grand yes. progressive vision of alberta's role on the global stage i mean it's a perverse misreading of what actually happened and then she says i'll don't worry i'll go back and work for those international institutions again and you got to think oh that's a bit of a backhanded slap at the province too yeah i don't know who's gonna do it but somebody should write a book about this i think that would be fascinating <laughs> at some point miriam how about you you've got time these days right well we just have a little bit of time left for our regular feature good stuff from the gallery in which we offer up a few selections of text audio or video that our listeners may want to check out my selection is a new york times article by peter baker on this week's 40th anniversary of richard nixon's resignation as u.s president now i'm not comparing <laughs> nixon scandals with redford's they're a little bit different but i did think that the timing of the anniversary uh, was kind of a funny coincidence and the article has an interesting discussion 
about the difficulty of defining the limits of political power. So, Paula, what, what did you find this week? Well, I have two things to recommend. One, and I, I know people are going to think this is odd, but you should read the Auditor General's report because it's a cracking good read. I mean, it, it's, it's eloquent, it's articulate, it's not... It's not a dense text. It's not very long, uh, and it's the best whodunit of the summer. And then uh, the other thing I would suggest is I, I found online the text of Ulysses S. Grant's, the U.S. president uh, uh, post-Civil War, his eighth speech to the Congress in which he apparently coined the phrase, mistakes were made to explain what happened when people he appointed were taking <laughs> were taking bribes from, from railway developers. And so I, I think, you know, as long as we're looking at the history of of, you know, Nixon, Redford, and Grant, people who love the mistakes were made line. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on the link to the to the Grant speech. It it's goes back all the way to the 1860s. Wow. <laughs> okay. Miriam, what have you got for good stuff this week? I also went to the New York Times. Um, mine is their editorial published in the August 4th edition. Um, it's called Omar Khadr's Untold Story, uh, and it's, it's their editorial criticizing the Canadian government for not allowing Toronto Star reporter Michelle Shepard an interview with um, with Omar Khadr while he's imprisoned in Canada. So a uh, really interesting read. I think everyone should check it out. Wow, well, we will check that out. And Sheila? Well, just to follow up on that, I think another very interesting read is Alberta's appeal court decision on why his sentence is deemed a um, youth sentence. And it's uh, also very readable, very well written, um, and makes mention of some of the Supreme Court decisions that supported Cotter in the past. And uh, if you want an understanding of how that issue played out, it's a very good read. Wow. Well, that wraps up the 50th episode of the Press Gallery. A special shout-out goes to Sarah O'Donnell, who is vacationing this week, but deserves all the kudos for being the architect of the previous 49 episodes. If you want to hear any of those, they are available on edmontonjournal.com's opinion page, SoundCloud, and iTunes. The Press Gallery also has a Facebook page at facebook.com slash thepressgallery. Thanks again for listening. We may not have an aura of power around here, but we do try to keep a bright light on the even crazier world of Alberta politics. If you're hungry for more, come find us again next week in the press gallery.